0: Got your Bibles? Grab your Bibles, if you would, pen, paper, whatever you need. You guys can make notes in your sermon notes page there that are in your bulletins. Uh, This is the fourth part of the particular portion we're looking at, and the eschaton in the prophets showing the victory of the Messiah promised in the Old Testament prophets. And so if you guys would join with me. As you get your Bibles ready, your pens ready, your sermon notes page ready, everyone ready, let's come together let's ask God to bless the message today. Father, I want to come before you and thank you, Lord, for, Lord, uh, granting me the opportunity to be before your church, God. Lord, uh, come before you, Lord, as a jar of clay, Lord God, in um, myself unworthy as a man to, to be before your people, to be doing such a glorious thing, but in Christ you have redeemed us, Lord, and you've, you have, you have charged to our account righteousness, his righteousness. We are declared, Lord, righteous. We're not guilty. We're no, there's no fear of condemnation, Lord, in Christ. So we want to thank you, God, and ask, Lord, that you would use this jar of clay to proclaim your glory, the exaltation of Christ in the world, Lord, that you would help me to speak, Lord, by your spirit, Lord, to your church, to encourage us, to change us, to edify, to equip God. I want to ask, Lord, that you correct, Lord, Correct us, Lord, and, and help us to see your vision for the world than we have ever imagined. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, if you guys are new to the room, we're doing a series called Eschaton. That's the wonderfully delicious little uh, graphic there Pastor Luke made, Eschaton. And it's a new series for us. We were in Romans uh, for a long time. We planted the church a long time ago. Actually, we we Actually, we just got out of Romans to start this new series, and we only made it to Romans 9. And so about three years in Romans, verse by verse, awesome series. I think most of it's online, so you can go back and listen to it. But we, we felt that it was a necessary element for us, the church, to really do a study on eschatology. And for those of you guys that are like into this sort of a thing, eschatology is a study of last things, or more popularly in our culture, the end times study. Now, you might think that we're doing that because it's a popular thing, or because it's just simply something that gets people kind of excited and motivated to talk about end times things. But our perspective as a church is more historical, it's more ancient, it's more orthodox, it's more old school. We believe that Christ is victorious in history, right? Amen. Not just at the end. We, we, we believe that's course in our current Christian, in believing that the church is defeated in the world. The, the popular theme today, not all Christians believe this, but it's popular in our culture because of books like the Left Behind series. And that is the idea that the world is going to go to hell in a handbasket and that ultimately Jesus returns for a secret rapture of his people. You've seen the bumper stickers that say, in case of rapture, what? This car will be unmanned. (laughs) The idea that there's going to be planes dropping out of the sky with pairs of pants and t-shirts and seats and all these different things is pervasive in our culture. The idea that Christians are going to vanish from the earth to leave behind a world that will suffer seven years of horrific tribulation with an antichrist figure. Ultimately, the church is defeated and beat up. Jesus comes back to rescue it. And then a thousand-year reign of Christ. That's a lot to throw at you as you open up the service. If you knew the Christ, everything I just said to you was, and I'm glad that you think it is. Because our perspective is that the Bible gives you a picture, a vision of the Messiah. Listen, when Jesus came... It wasn't a Johnny-come-lately moment. It wasn't a plan B kind of moment where, where Jesus showed up and it was a shock to everybody that, oh, oh it's, it's this way now. No, Jesus, as Paul opens up Romans, just the book of Romans, he talks about how he's a slave of Christ, and he's talking about this Messiah who was a descendant of David and who was promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures. That was an important element for the early church. They weren't coming to the first century Jews in the world and saying, hey, this is kind of a neat thing. You want to join our club? Here's something new. This Messiah came, and it's totally a new thing. You see, everything that they spoke about was in fulfillment of what God had already said was coming. Nothing was, in a sense, original. It was fulfillment. It was anticipation brought to Fulfillment, a consummation of all that God had said was coming, now was alive and real and tangible with Christ right in front of them, alive from the dead. And so when you look in your Old Testament, you see that God foretold all the things about Jesus. Listen closely how cool this is. The Bible tells you that who's coming, who specifically God is coming as a man to Bethlehem, that he's going to be the suffering servant and yet also conquering king. It tells you every detail necessary to know Jesus, even down to why he's dying. It tells you why he's dying. He'll justify the many as he'll bear their iniquities. A man is going to come and take the position of sacrifice in the place of God's people, that he's going to be the righteous one, there would be no deceit in his mouth. This is all Old Testament, that he'd be the lamb foreshadowed in the Old Testament, brought to fulfillment. It even tells you when specifically when the messiah is coming long before he ever comes but there is an element we have missed and it is so significant because so much of what was promised about the messiah is not just and i got to say this emphatically the story of the messiah was not just that god was going so you could go to heaven one day that's just not true Is it true that we have eternal life and heaven to look forward to with Jesus? Is it true? You can say it loud as you want because that is straight up awesome. Yes, it's true. Do you have eternal life now through faith in Jesus? Are you going to spend eternity with God forever? Yes. Is Jesus ever going to lose you? Never. But i got to say this to us. As a culture, we've lost so much of what the Messiah was to bring. Listen, we've lost the idea of the kingdom. The Messiah was bringing a kingdom. This is why when we read the New Testament today as 21st century evangelical American Christians, it just looks sometimes weird. Jesus is talking a lot about this kingdom and the Jews are asking him as he's telling them he's Mashiach. He's the Messiah. They're saying things like, what, well then what, where? Where, where is it? Are you the Messiah? Where? And you have these odd conversations going on between Jesus and the Jews where they're saying, like, well, where? Where can I, can I touch it? Where can I smell it? Where, where, where can I, where's the throne at? Jesus, Messiah, where's it at? You have these odd conversations where Jesus says things like, don't think you're going to be able to say, see here or see there, for the kingdom of God is within you. You have them accusing him of casting out demons by Satan himself. They're saying, well, you're in league with the devil. That's why you can do it. You're, you're hooked up with the devil right now. That's, that's how you're casting out demons. And Jesus says things like this in Matthew 13. He says, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, what? Then the Kingdom of God has come upon you. If I do A, then B. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the Kingdom of God has come upon you. And it all, and, and be transparent here myself, being raised in this Christian culture. It's not the majority view. I mean, there's Christians that are faithful always that don't hold to these really strange views of the kingdom. But but be honest, in this this culture, we don't talk a lot about the kingdom, the Messiah, and they put it in its its real biblical context. So when you read things like Mark 1, where Jesus comes in and he says, repent, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe the gospel. We go, "I I don't usually share it like that, do I? Think about this for a second. Have we come to an unbeliever in our day as Christians and when we tell them about Jesus, do we talk about the fact that the kingdom of God has arrived? Is that part of our message to them? Because you see, the Bible, when when, when Jesus leaves the wilderness, you you know the scene. Jesus, the perfect Israelite, goes into the wilderness for 40 days. Sound familiar? Israelites, 40. Where is that? Exodus story, right? But he does what the Israelites didn't do. In the wilderness wanderings, Israel sins against God. They betray God. They they don't depend on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. They go and worship false gods. They fail that test in the wilderness. The Israelites fail. Jesus, the second Adam, the perfect Israelite, goes into the wilderness. And when he throws the smackdown on Satan and does what Israel failed to do, as soon as... Matthew 5, read it. As soon as he leaves the wilderness wanderings scene and he defeats Satan where Israel failed, it says that he goes and starts preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. And i got to ask us as a church, when do we talk about him like that anymore? You see, the early church did... Christians have for 2,000 years, but in our culture, it has been an idea that has been put to the back burner, and I want to say that is why, as a church, we have been so ineffective in our culture, because we fail to see that Jesus had greater intentions for the world than simply just punching tickets for heaven one day. Jesus has the necessary obligation as Messiah to transform the entire world by his gospel, Let me just say this to you, it it would be an odd situation if the world wasn't changed when he came back, because the whole entire Old Testament said it was going to happen. It was going to start small, as this picture sort of tells, like a mustard seed, and it would grow into a large tree. Jesus said it would be like leaven in a lump of dough, a little bit of yeast in dough that permeates the entirety of the loaf. It talks about in Daniel 2, the Messiah would be like this stone cut out of a mountain that would strike the statue that represented these four kingdoms that were going to come, and the Messiah was going to come during the time of the fourth kingdom, which was Rome. It was going to be like a stone cut out of a mountain that would destroy this, and it would become a mountain that would fill the whole world. This is why today, oftentimes as Christians, we struggle when we evangelize people who are Hebrew by birth. We struggle. Here's why we struggle. Because we can show definitively that Messiah, Jesus, fulfills every prophecy about him. Amen? I'm talking straight up, awesome, there's no way out. Jesus is the Messiah. And here's where they get you. If you have a bad view of the kingdom and of eschatology, here's where they get you. They'll say something like, well... Jesus can't be the Messiah. You say, well, I've already shown you that he was going to come and die and have his hands and feet pierced, and his heart be like wax melted within him, that he'd come be raised in obscurity, that he'd be from Bethlehem, that it was God himself in the flesh, that he'd make intercession for the transgressors, and on and on and on. And this is when he would come before that second temple was destroyed. What do you mean he's not the Messiah? And a Jew today that knows their Bible, the same Bible that we share, the Torah, the Tanakh, They'll say to you something very significant that you have to come to terms with. They'll say something to you like, well, if Jesus is the Messiah, how come he's not changing the world? Where is his kingdom? The Messiah's kingdom had to change the whole world. So if this Jesus is the Messiah, what's up? A bad view of the kingdom impacts your ability even to do evangelism with a Jew, So significant. And so eschatology matters. Your view of end times matters. Our view, just to put it before you as a church, is again, ancient, historical, straight up old school. It's not flashy. It's not new. It's not cool. It is old school. It's the same view of guys like Jonathan Edwards. I rest my case. Church is over tonight. Okay, good. It's the same view of guys like Greg Bonson. Athanasius had post-millennial thought. So did Augustine, the great church father who wrote City of God. Our view is post-millennial, and essentially is this, guys, ready? Jesus came on time. Jesus did what he was supposed to do, and Jesus brought the kingdom that was promised, and it is filling the whole world as was promised. And that Jesus, right now, like Psalm 110 says, as Paul quoted of Jesus, right now is in the process of putting every enemy under his feet, until the last enemy is ultimately destroyed, which is death. That's what Jesus is doing right now. It's mustard seed to large tree. It's 11 disciples at the ascension of Jesus now to a room full of people in Phoenix, Arizona, on the other side of the planet, worshiping and loving the Lord God of Israel because of this Messiah, Jesus. That is what it is. It's the kingdom of God transforming cultures. It's the kingdom of God bringing life where there is death, like we just did as a church body get to see God do this week, saving six children. Do you see what I'm saying? We believe that Jesus is going to accomplish all that was promise of the kingdom of God in history, and he's been doing it since he ascended and was seated Father, in the first century. And so I want to give you a little glimpse today, and what I'm doing today, watch this. If you missed last week's sermon, this week's sermon is a continuation of last week's. We gave you three points last week. I'm going to give them to you again so you can write them down. And I want you to write these down so you can get them, okay, with the verses intact so you can go and read them later. All right, everyone listen closely. The first thing we talked about last week was the timing of the events of the kingdom of God and the Messiah. So first, ready? Write down timing because this is incredible. And this is God of I told you last week, this has to excite us as a church. Why? Because God doesn't tell you there's going to be some guy and he's going to be a prophet and a teacher. And, you know, it doesn't tell you some vague notions of Messiah. It tells you when, specifically as to when he's coming. And it even puts a bookend at the end of it so that no one can be Messiah after a certain event happens. That has got to get you excited because there's no way anybody in the world could ever claim to be Messiah anymore based on God's timeline. Kids, this has to excite you. Your faith is rooted in facts. Oftentimes, people will paint the picture in our culture. They'll say something like, "Christians are, are often like people that are sort of on the edge of a cliff, hanging on the edge of it." And, and Christians are the kind of people who abandon abandon reason, abandon science, and they sort of get to the edge of the cliff and they just close their eyes and they're like, "Oh, I hope this works out," <laughs> and they take that leap. And they're sort of falling in darkness while the rest of the culture stands on the ground of reason and, fa- and science and logic and evidence. It's a lie. It's a lie. There is no, f- there is no reason, logic, science, evidence apart from this God. Amen? Amen? Period. He's the foundation of all of our thinking, all of our reasoning, all of our science, whatever. And kids, I want to get you excited about the fact that the Bible tells you everything about Jesus before He comes, hundreds of years before He comes. You can read the story of your Messiah, your Lord, your Savior, long before He comes, even down to the timing of when He's coming. In books written hundreds of years before He does. So the timing of the events is the first part. Second, ready? You can write this down. There was an atmosphere promised. That means that, watch, the Messiah was going to come to history, but it wasn't just He was in time. He was going to have certain events And it's sort of atmosphere, uh, a spirit around him. Something was going to happen when he came. So there's an atmosphere promise. And the third point is this. I'm going to talk about the effect of the Messiah and his kingdom. So what we're going to do is this, guys. Ready? Your Bible has two sections, essentially. What are those two sections? Help me out. Old Testament and New Testament. How many books are in your Bible? Good job. How many in the Old? Yeah, look at apology at Church. Woo! Church full of scholars. Now it's exciting for you guys to know everybody. You should know these things. It's the word of the living God, amen? It's God's word. You should know these things. This is the the word of God. He's preserved for all of us throughout time. as Consisting of essentially two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. What we're doing, guys, is we're going to our Old Testaments. We're saying, well, what did God say? What was this Messiah going to bring? What was it going to look like? Now, I'm not going to go over all the details of what we did last week, but I'll give you, if you weren't here, the essential verses to look at later. For the timing of the events, Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 through 44. Daniel 2, 31 through 44, told us, during the time of the Babylonian captivity, about 600 years before Jesus. So put that in your minds. About 600 years before Jesus... Daniel tells us through prophecy that there's going to be how many kingdoms? Four Four kingdoms that are going to come. And it starts with which one? Babylonian kingdom. So listen how specific this is. God's telling you four kingdoms until God sets up his kingdom of Messiah. Now watch Babylonian. Just do your history, guys. Medo-Persian, Greece, and Rome. It's amazing, isn't it? How God foretells history before it happens. You know why? Because he's sovereign over it. He's sovereign over the big events, the macro events, and the micro events. He's sovereign over kingdoms. He's sovereign over your bank account. He's sovereign over kings. And he's sovereign over you while you sleep at night. That's the God we're talking about. And he tells us four kingdoms are coming And the Messiah in Daniel 2 is going to come in his kingdom. And it says this, that the God of heaven, notice this, it's not a man. It's not just some person. It's not just some nation. It's the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom in the time of the fourth kingdom. And it'll be like a stone. And it's going to grow and become a mountain and fills the whole earth. I want you to capture that vision for a second, guys. Listen, listen, because I'm going to say it a lot. Stone, small rock that becomes a what? Mountain, that's progression. Do you see that? The kingdom of God is going to have progressive growth. It's not going to enter world history as, Booyah, mountain. It comes in as stone. And then it, what? Becomes mountain throughout the world. So the timing is, fourth kingdom, Messiah comes in his. Quick, if you don't know this, if you're new to the church, you're a new believer, or if you just, you just checked out for a while... When did Jesus come into history, guys? During time of what kingdom? Rome. It was a Roman that actually decreed the death of Jesus. Pontius Pilate. Read your history. Josephus records that Jesus came as Pilate. That's external, non-biblical history that affirms that fact. Amazing, Jesus comes. And what does Jesus say when he comes? He says what? The time is fulfilled. What time? What time? The time of Daniel's prophecy. And the kingdom of God is what? At hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He comes on time when he was supposed to. The next part of the timing is this one. And I love this one. You guys got to keep this one and put it in your pocket. You got to keep it. You got to share this with people. Daniel chapter 9 tells you some stuff's going to happen surrounding this Messiah. He's going to make an end of sin. He's going to bring reconciliation for iniquity. He's going to bring an everlasting righteousness. He's going to come. It says Messiah in Daniel chapter 9. Messiah the prince is going to come and he's going to be cut off and have nothing. Now, if you're if you in the text in Daniel 9, you can look at the word Messiah, the word's the Messiah, the prince. You can underline the word cut off. That word is the same word used for animal sacrifices. Isn't that interesting? The Messiah is going to come and be cut off. Same word used for animal sacrifices. And everyone ready? Answer this question. When John the Baptist came... Jesus' cousin, the promised forerunner of the Messiah, what did he claim about Jesus when he saw him coming into his ministry? He says, behold the what? The Lamb of God, who what? Takes away the sin of the world. Isn't it interesting that Daniel 9 refers to this Messiah, the Prince, he's going to be cut off, same word used for the animal sacrifices, and that's how John the Baptist referred to him, the Lamb of God. And then it says, this Messiah, the Prince, comes and is cut off, then... The city and the sanctuary are going to be destroyed in reference to the second temple. So do your timeline. Are you ready, guys? Daniel writes in Babylonian captivity. He says the Messiah is going to come. He's going to die a violent death, animal sacrifices cut off, and then it says that the second temple is going to be destroyed. Now let's do our history. Daniel, Babylon, kingdom of Rome, Jesus comes. Did Jesus die? A death like the animal sacrifices? Was the second temple destroyed? When? 70 AD. If Jesus isn't the Messiah, there isn't a Messiah. Amen? That's, Dan- that's Daniel's prophecies, the timing of the events. Now, number two, I told you guys, we want to look at the atmosphere that was promised. And this is awesome. This is awesome. Because we did this at Christmas too, didn't we? It's exciting to look at the birth narratives of Jesus because it's not just this really cool story of, 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 Jesus being born, Virgin Mary, and all these different things. There's stuff surrounding it that's just awesome. Like, did you know that John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin? Did you know that Mary hung out with Elizabeth? And that Jesus is in Mary's belly while John the Baptist is in Elizabeth's, Elizabeth's, Elizabeth's belly? Do you know that? And that John the Baptist straight up got some hops in the belly when Jesus comes in 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 Mary's womb. John the Baptist does a little, little, he's a little Pentecostal for a moment. Woo! Right? I mean, all that's happening, but John the Baptist was that forerunner that was promised. It's not just stuff, not just a timeline. It's stuff's gonna happen around it. So, A, ready? There was gonna be the promised Elijah. Again, not all the details today, but the verses at least. Malachi 4, 1 through 6. Malachi 4, 1 through 6. And watch this. In, in our current canon today, that's the Bible we have t- today as, as, as Christians, how it's put together. Same, same text as the, as the Jews in the Old Testament. What, in our canon, what's the last book of the Old Testament? <sighs> There's a lot of mumbling and murmuring going on right now. Malachi! Malachi! Malachi, now think about it for a second, we have Malachi at the end of our Old Testament books, and it finishes with the promise that this forerunner is going to come, and the forerunner is going to be Elijah, and surrounding his coming is going to be judgment, it says behold the day is coming, burning like an oven, that's judgment motif, that's judgment, that's Hebrew judgment talk. And it says this Elijah's going to come, and he's going to bring people to repentance. Now, think for a second. Here's this dude. Again, I told you, think Pastor Luke with leather, camel skin, eating honey and locusts. Pastor Luke. um, And you have to think of this guy in the wilderness, strange dude, calling people to what? Repent. Repent. What was John the Baptist doing when he comes before Jesus comes? He's calling people to what? Repentance. And Jesus clearly taught in Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 24, that John the Baptist was the promised Elijah. Because Elijah in the Old Testament called Israel to repentance. And Jesus said that John the Baptist was the Elijah who was to come, the forerunner before the Messiah. So there's these things that are supposed to happen, but I want you to sort of sink your teeth into something right now. And that is that John the Baptist had a pretty specific message that we often forget to pay attention to because we have a lot of times preconceived ideas as to what all this stuff means, and so it'll slip past us at times. John the Baptist comes into in Matthew 3, and what does he say to the Jews of his day? He says, brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath about to come. And he says, the axe is already laid where? At the roots. Now, if you know what that means, that axe is already in swing. It's already there. It's not, maybe I'll swing. The axe is on the shoulder, waiting for your reply. It says, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. It's already there. The teeth of the axe were already about to sink into that root. John the Baptist is warning them of the coming judgment, which was what was supposed to happen. The Messiah was going to come after this Elijah figure came to call people to repentance, and then there was going to be judgment. Amazing that how the New Testament follows that specific example. And this is why, by the way, Matthew spent so much time talking about John the Baptist. Because Matthew is a, is a gospel that specifically catered to speak to a Jew, to show you that Yeshua, Jesus, is most definitely Mashiach, the Messiah. Okay, number two, the outpouring of God's spirit was part of the atmosphere promised of Messiah when he came. And what I did last week is I wanted you to go to Acts chapter 2. We will go there today. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Acts 2, 14. Acts 2, 14. Famous scene. The, the holy spirit of god is poured out on the disciples and let me just say this to you right now if that moment had you would know definitively jesus was not the promised messiah because the messiah had to also bring with him not only end of sin with god but he had to also bring the promised blessing the eschatological blessing of god's spirit now dwelling with us and he did he did You see, when Jesus talks about he's going to go, he says, but I won't leave you as orphans. He says, I'll send the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. He will guide you into all truth. He will teach you these things. The Holy Spirit of God was the promised blessing of the Messiah coming as well. And so listen, Acts chapter two, verse 14. Peter quotes from Joel. It says, but Peter stood up with the eleven raised his voice and proclaimed to the men of Judah and all you residents of Jerusalem. Let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk. They're speaking to them in their actual language. As you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it'll be in the last days, says God. Not the last days of human history, guys. Last days of the old covenant era. It says, in the last day, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I will pour out my spirit on male and female slaves in those days, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below. Listen closely. Blood and fire and cloud and a cloud of smoke the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and remarkable day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Listen closely. A lot of that language is freaky, right? Admit it, freaky. Sun turned to darkness, moon to blood. And the what's amazing is this. Watch this. I said that to you, and in your mind right now, a lot of us are tempted when we hear that language, we're tempted to go like this. But did you know that that's the same kind of cosmic deconstruction language that God used in the Old Testament against other nations that He was about to judge, like Egypt and Edom? The Jews didn't go, "Well, the moon's not blood, so I guess it's not happening." They understand. understood It was it was dramatic hyperbole, God language. And what Peter does here is he says, "What you're seeing happening right now, guys, is what God God had promised to happen in the last days." In this time of the Messiah, this judgment's coming, but you see these signs and wonders. They're a visible sign that God has kept His promise. And what's on the tail end of this promise of God's Spirit? This. Judgment. Judgment. Now I want you to think for a second. And I'm going to go ahead and feed you ahead of time. I'm going to give you a little teaser. John the Baptist came, and what did he warn the Jews about was coming? What? Judgment. The ashes laid at the root of the trees. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The Old Testament said this Elijah would come before the Messiah, but it was going to be a day burning hot like an oven. Peter at Pentecost to that generation says to them what? What you're seeing right now is the fulfillment of Joel. All these signs and wonders, fulfillment of Joel. But guess what's coming? Judgment. What does Jesus say on the way to the cross? He's carrying his cross and we miss it. The the women of Jerusalem are weeping over Jesus as he's bleeding on that street to the place of the skull, Golgotha. He's going now to pay the price that was promised to redeem his people from their sins. And the women are weeping. And did you ever notice this? Jesus says something kind of cold-blooded to them, I used to think, because I didn't understand it. On the way to the cross, Jesus says something to the women as they're crying, and he says this to them. He says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Did you ever notice that? Did you ever notice that Jesus in Matthew 23 says this? that all the blood of the righteous from Abel to this last prophet is going to be upon this generation. Which generation? His generation. He says, behold, these are the days of vengeance in order that all that has been written will be fulfilled. The promise was that that generation was going to receive judgment. Now, here's a teaser. Question. Did Elijah come before Jesus? Yes. Did Jesus come fulfill the promises to make an end of sin? Yes. Did judgment come upon that generation by 70 AD? Yes. Do you see the timeline? Do you see the atmosphere of the Spirit? It all works together. It's an amazing thing. Now here we go. I want to show you this. And this is, this is pretty amazing. Judgment on the covenant breakers. Go to Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65 is in your Old Testament. Isaiah is one of my favorite books of the Old Testament. Pastor Luke, as we, as we planted Apology at Church, decided he would go ahead, as he was leading the youth, do a study on Isaiah verse by verse. And it was awesome sauce. Awesome. I think he may even have some of those still, maybe on audio or something. He could share with you. Isaiah 65, we're not going to do all of it, but I do want to share with you. Listen to this. Now, while you're looking at this, and maybe some of you guys are like, Jeff, I never read Isaiah. Let me just give you this. Isaiah is amazing because he gives you all these different portraits of the Messiah, suffering servant, conquering king, the person who brings the nations to God. It's really pretty awesome. And if you want to have something that will absolutely bless your life tonight, go home and read Isaiah 53. That's a prophecy written about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection about 700 years before he came. Read it. It's amazing. But Isaiah 65 promises something. Listen closely. I was sought by those, verse 1, who did not ask. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called. I spread out my hands all day long to rebellious people who walk in the wrong paths following their own thoughts. Those people continually provoke me to my face. So what, guys, just capture this. You don't have to know all of this, but just capture some basic concepts. Listen closely. 700 years before Jesus comes, what's God say? that he is going to be found by people who didn't ask for him. Did you catch that? He's going to be found by people who didn't ask for him. And yet he says here that he has spread out his hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the wrong path. So what are you getting here? God is saying what? He spread his hands out to people and they've rebelled. That's to his people, but they rebelled. So he is going to be found by people who didn't even ask for him. You getting that? You starting to see the picture? Well, what was Jesus, guys, what was Jesus' hardest thing in his ministry in the first century? What was it? Who, who were the hardest people to crack? The Jews. Who were the greatest antagonists to his ministry? The Jews. Are you seeing it? The gospel then went to the Gentiles. People who were in darkness and didn't know him. What does Jesus say when he, he, he ascends to the Father? What's the promise in Matthew 18, 20-20? Two, what is it? the promise? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of what? All nations, right? The promise was that these people are going to be judged and that this new name would be given to God's people. Now, look, watch here. Here's, here's what's amazing. In verse 9, ready, of 65, I will produce descendants from Jacob and heirs to my mountains from Judah. My chosen ones will possess it. 11, but you who abandon the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table for fortune and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword and all of you will kneel down to be slaughtered because I called and you did not answer. I spoke and you did not hear. You did what was evil in my sight and chose what I did not delight in. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. By the way, when was this written? Help me here. When was this written? About 700 years before Jesus. Look Look what God says about 700 years before Jesus. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. My servants will eat, but you'll be hungry. My servants will drink, but you'll be thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you'll be put to shame. My servants will shout for joy from a glad heart, but you will cry out from an anguished heart. And you will lament out of a broken spirit. You will lean as a curse for my chosen ones, and the Lord God will kill you but he will give his servants another name. Is that sounding familiar, guys? What was so clearly, so vividly, was that God would call out to his people who would not answer and that he would then destine them for the sword and give their name to his chosen ones. And I want you to see it because you you wouldn't believe it if I didn't show you. Go to Matthew now, 21. you got to see it with your own eyes. You already know before the Messiah comes, the judgment is coming before, or sorry, around the time. And I want you to see this parable. Let's listen, listen to this parable. Matthew 21, I'll let you guys get there. New Testament, your first book, 33. Listen to the parable. Jews of his day, the leadership. Now, just follow this because it's... Listen to another parable. There was a man, a landowner, who put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. He leased it to tenant farmers and went away. When the grape harvest drew near, he sent his slaves to the farmers to collect his fruit. But the farmers took his slaves, beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. And he sent other slaves, more than the first group, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son. But when the tenant farmers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now listen, look what Jesus says to them. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those farmers? Now, listen to their response as they hear the parable of this owner of the vineyard sending these people, and they keep killing one, beating one, stoning another. Hey, I'll send my son. And then they take him, they throw him out of the vineyard, and they kill him. And Jesus says, watch, what's the owner of the vineyard going to do with them? And now watch what the leadership of Jerusalem says. He will completely destroy those terrible men, they told him, and lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his produce at the harvest. And Jesus' response is compelling. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This came from the Lord, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Here it is. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, And given to a nation producing its fruit. Verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they knew he was speaking about them. Are you seeing it? Are you seeing it all around the timing of the Messiah, the atmosphere that was promised? All of this was something that was anticipated. And a moment to talk about some. So what? That is us. Specifically, he's telling them in his generation that you're going to be judged. The kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you and given to others. And guess what? You all are on that promise. You're on the heels of that promise. You're the fulfillment of everything Jesus said. All of his promises are yea and amen. And you've got to imagine that for a second. Jesus wasn't making an idle threat to them that didn't happen. He said, this is going to happen. And it happened in 70 AD. You can read about it in your history. The Jews had a three and a half year war with the Romans. The Romans finally made their way in, sacked the city, destroyed it, took the temple apart, stone off of stone, and guess what? When the Jews were done, in that generation before they had all died, destroying that temple, who was left? Who was left? God's kingdom, his people, it's as though the Christians who were being persecuted in that century by the Romans and the Jews could have stood on the ashes of that temple and said, I told you he was the temple I told you he was the sacrificial lamb, I told you he was the priest I told you he was the Messiah and his kingdom has come, and if you want to know the vivid display, the high definition display that his kingdom has come that temple is gone, that priesthood is gone It's over. And now his kingdom, that kingdom he promised with his people who would eat, with his people who would drink is here. What did Jesus say to the woman at the well? He says, give me some water. He tells her basically, he says, woman, I told you last week, that wasn't like, you know, a slam, like woman. (laughs) He says, woman, if you knew who it was that was asking you for a drink, you would have asked me for water. and You'd never be thirsty again. That's the kind of water Jesus gives. Water where you never thirst again. He says, I'm the bread of life. If you take of Him, you'll never be hungry again. That's the eternal life that was promised. Jesus tells the woman what? She, she tries to change the subject, doesn't she, in John 4. Don't you love the woman at the well? She's a Samaritan and a woman. That's a big no-no in Jesus' day, by the way. A lot of racism going on and a lot of treating women like garbage. It wasn't biblical. It's was wrong. Samaritan woman. Jesus comes to her and she, he can, he can, he confronts her. Right? And she changes the subject and says, I perceive you're a prophet. You know, our fathers say you should worship here. You say there in Jerusalem. Where do you say we should worship? And Jesus says, an hour is coming and now is where you won't worship the Father here, but the true worshipers of God worship Him in spirit and in truth. That old Jerusalem symbol, the temple, Jerusalem, the city you can touch was going to go away so that the things that could not be destroyed would remain forever. And do you know what you are? The body of Christ, the bride of Christ. Relation refer to the bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem. You are God's people. You are the fulfillment of all the promises of God, His kingdom in earth breaking into history. You are a fulfillment of that stone becoming a mountain. You are a fulfillment of that mustard seed becoming a large tree. Amen? It's pretty awesome. And you know what you should You should puff your chest up. And like proud, like, like, I got an awesome father. And he is powerful. Watch out, world. This should, this should fill your heart with power and boldness to come into the world with the gospel of the kingdom, of reconciliation and peace with God, and that Jesus is a mighty Savior and King. And we know that the promise in Psalm 2 is what? God gives a little warning to kings of the earth, right? Right? What does God warn the kings of the earth with in Psalm 2? What does he warn them with? He says What? For the kings to obey the son, lest they perish. That's what the world is coming to, is that this Jesus is going to be glorified in the transformation, not only of you and I in our lives, but the whole entire world. Amen? Amen. The last thing I want you to see, here we go, ready? The nature or effect of the Messiah in his kingdom. Daniel 9, ready? First one. Daniel 9, you already know this. Sin will be dealt with. And this can get awfully practical for a minute here. How many of you guys know this? Jesus said three amazing words on the cross that every Christian must know. Say it loud, guys. Let me ask you a question. Daniel 9 says, end of sin. The Messiah would make an end of sin before that second temple was destroyed. Can I ask you a question, Christian? Will God ever hold your sins against you ever again? Are you a recipient of God's wrath in any way now? Did Jesus make an end of sin? It is finished. It is finished. It's finished. No more Yom Kippur. You know what Yom Kippur is? The Jews don't do it like they're supposed to today, but Yom Kippur is a day of atonement. You had to do it every year. Levitical priests go animal sacrifice every single year. Constant reminder, constant reminder, constant reminder. It's over. You're not sacrificing animals anymore, are you? There's no more atonement ritual because the ultimate end of sin has been given, right? Daniel 9, sin would be dealt with. B, The next part, number two, however you want to put it down. Jeremiah 31 promises a new covenant. Ready, guys? God was going to deal with your sin and mine, people of God, and he was going to bring a new covenant. And I want you to see it. Just go quickly to Jeremiah 31. That's your Old Testament. Let's see who gets there first. I win. (laughs) Jeremiah 31. Verse 31. I want you to see it. This had to happen in the time of the Messiah. Here is one of the nature or effects of the Messiah and his kingdom. Here it is. Jeremiah 31, 31. Listen closely. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. The covenant they broke, even though I had married. Notice that God, watch, I want you to take that, what I just said. I want you to grab that. That, that concept in his head where God says that he had married them. Israel, he had married them. I want you to grab it. I want you to grab it. I want you to remember it. God married Israel. God married Israel. Bride, bridegroom, get that, put it in your pocket, save it for later. It'll be relevant later. Okay? Remember I said that. The Lord's Declaration, verse 33. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's Declaration. I will put my teaching within them. I will write it in their hearts. I will be their God and they'll be my people no longer or his brother saying know the Lord for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them this is the Lord's declaration for I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sin. God promised a new covenant. Jesus at the last supper as we call it. What does he say about the cup? Guys blood of the new covenant poured out for many for the Remit sins. Messiah's kingdom was going to come. It was going to make an end of sin. It was going to bring a new covenant. No more animal sacrifices. No more priesthood stuff. No more of those things. No more remembrance of sin. Romans chapter four says what? What guys? That God will never count your sins against you again, will He? That God will promise. thirty-six was another promise of six. You guys can read it later. But basically, God promises to remove a heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. God promises to cleanse you from all your idols. He promises to cause you to observe his statutes. And what does that taste like today for us? Here's what it looks like. It looks like the law of God is no longer on tablets outside of us, shouting at us. Now it looks like the law of God written in our hearts, with new hearts, with God's spirit within us, with our sins cleansed away, Ezekiel 36 says God will cause you to observe his statutes. Don't you think it's straight weird? You can have somebody and lots of people in this room who are dead. Rooms, sold out and lost in drug and alcohol addiction. People who are in this room right now that have been to prison, the criminal activity and drug addiction and everything else. People in this room, they were just living lives, just engulfed in darkness and drinking it in with no desire to run to this God. None. People have done every wicked thing imaginable, we're all there. Amen? Amen. Those are our lives. And then all of a sudden now, you hear the story of this Palestinian Jew in the first century who is crucified as a common criminal, and you say, that man gets my whole life. And then all of a sudden in your heart now, your desires start to change. You used to long to slam some heroin or take a bump of cocaine or chase something down that was just pure wicked to run away from God. His word never cared to know him. And all of a sudden now, you desire to be obedient to this Messiah. All of a sudden, the words that used to come out of your mouth so easily before, they start to come out now and you're like, it doesn't even feel right any longer. You used to be able to so easily engage in any kind of activity and you feel bad. you feel kind of bad because, you know, the law of God's in its sense sort of written morally there on your heart as every image, but still pursue it. You feel kind of bad, but you couldn't really stop, could you? And all of a sudden now, those in Christ, you grace to know God. You get hungry for His Word. Jesus says go and you say, I want to. He says do and you say, yes, Lord. The law of God written on your hearts, the new covenant promise spirit of God, God causing you to obey His statutes. The fact that believers now, Christians today, don't have the law of God on the outside of us. It's written in your hearts. People who should be dead right now in this room, now alive, amen? Amen. Everything that was promised in the Old Testament has come to fulfillment of Messiah. All these promised blessings. Isaiah 2, I'll get you here. and This is the last thing we're going to end on because it is awesome. Go to Isaiah 2, and we're going to end on this. I want you to see. There's more, by the way, but I'm giving you a little Sam. It's going to get fleshed out. As we get into the New Testament, you're going to see some glorious stuff promised and fulfilled. But I want you to see this because we. i I got to confess, I missed this. In my walk with Jesus, I, I've missed this. But it's so fitting, I want you to see it, Isaiah 2. Again, when was Isaiah written, guys? When was Isaiah written? About 700 years before Jesus. I'm I'm just going to read it to you. I'm going to read it to you. I want you to hear it. I want you to soak it in. The vision that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days. Again, guys, let me just guess. Last days does not Necessarily refer to the last days of human history. We've read it that way so often that we fail to recognize it in its context. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established and the top of the mountains, and we will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it and men say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. To the house of the God of Jacob, he will teach us about his ways, walk in his paths. The law will go out of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle dispute and provide arbitration for many peoples. They will turn their swords into plows, and their spears into prunings and knives. Nations will not take up their sword against other nations, and they will never again train for war. A couple things about this text I want you to see. First thing is that it would be a mountain of the Lord raised above the other mountains. And all you have to do is read Hebrews chapter 12. And the writer of Hebrews says, we've already come to that mountain. We've already come. We've already come to that mountain. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, read it. And then it says, all nations will stream to it. I love this. Okay, ready? Um, You've got a mountain. And it says that the nations are going to stream to it. That's weird. Because water streams which direction? Down. Gravity has a tendency to do that. But what happens here is the mountain of the Lord is exalted, and what happens now? The nations stream what? Up. How do you get water to stream up? It has to be what? Drawn. All the nations are going to stream up. And I always do this just, just so you can get a feel for this. Raise your hand in this room if you are Jewish by birth. You can trace your line back to Moses, back to the Jews. And we got, we got our, our camera guy right over there, Matt DeJesus. Not quite a typical Jewish last name, but he's Jewish. Shalom, Matt. Now watch this. Raise your hand if you are not Jewish by birth in this room. The nations stream up to the mountain of God. But then it says, watch, the law will go out from Jerusalem. By the way, the New Testament, read Galatians 3 through 5. It talks about us being members of the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. The law goes out from Jerusalem. And what is the result, watch, of God's kingdom breaking in the world where all the nations stream up? The result of it is ultimate peace. So watch this. As a result of the nation streaming up, peace with God leads now to peace with men. Do you see the point? The fulfillment is mountain of God, nations streaming up, peace with God leads to peace among men. That's where it's going. And what do we have to look forward to as a church? This is it. We have ahead of us a victorious view of the kingdom of God in history. And we are in this moment right now Where I believe God is doing a major correction. You have to see this. Around the world today, Christians are, 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 it's like this, it's almost like it's this, the midst of this, this brewing, this, 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 of this, of this view of the kingdom of Christ that is so biblical and so ancient and so old. And now Christians are sinking their teeth into it and it's beginning to transform and change people. Now people are not so apathetic to what's going on in the world. They're not so indifferent. You have Christians all over the world today saying, hey, we're in this for the long haul. We're in this for the long run. How is God going to use my life for his glory? Listen, we are the people of God. We are the kingdom of God in this world. And this Messiah was going to own the world. Jesus says what as he leaves? I'll leave you with it. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go. What, guys? Of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded to you, What was the result of this this nation streaming up? The law would go out. The nations stream up, and the law goes out. Isn't it amazing that Jesus says what? Go get my disciples from every nation and teach them to obey. Isaiah 2. Nation streaming up and the law going out. Amen? Amen. This is awesome. And I I have about four more points to go, but we'll we'll do some more worship today. Let's go ahead and pray together. Father, thank you so much. I oh, just pray, Lord God, you love to set in our hearts and let it root there, God, so that you get glory for it. I pray this brings you praise and Christ is exalted as a result of this message and these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.